Before we jump into our study tonight, I just I wanted to point out a few other um, books if you're interested uh, in reading um, some more. Some related to this, some not. Um, I've been I've read two books recently that have been very helpful in the um, current uh, seems like ramping up uh, and very frequent dialogue uh, in terms of homosexuality. Um, one called um, The Same-Sex Controversy uh, by James White, his Reformed Baptist apologist, Alpha and Omega Ministries out of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, very helpful book. He addresses um, the issues related to homosexuality in the church and, um, and culture at large. Another one that's more, it's written by a pastor, but it's more of a sociological uh, study and um, dealing with this idea of the, um, the homosexual agenda, of which homosexual activists claim there is not one, but he points to the fact that there truly is and shows many evidences of that. Um, and it's called A Queer Thing Happened to America and What a Long, Strange Trip It's Been by Michael Brown. Um, so... If you want to uh, look into the history of it and where it's headed and kind of the social implications of that, it's a very, uh, a very good book, uh, quite lengthy, um, but uh, I think uh, well-written and, and very helpful if you're having conversations about this, and all of us uh, will sooner than later if you're not already. Um, related to our study, two books I want to point out, and I will admit up front these are both very um, very academic. One of them is a dissertation, um, and the other one is, um, is uh, written primarily for academians. But um, if you're interested in learning more about these topics that we're looking at the surface of, um, then these would be ones to look at. Um, the one on divine simplicity is called God Without Parts. The subtitle is Divine Simplicity and the Metaphysics of God's Absoluteness by James um, Dolezal, D-O-L-E-Z-A-L, God Without Parts, James Dolezal. There's also, if you just um, search for his name on the Internet, um, you'll find uh, two interviews that were done um, with him on the very subjects that we're talking about. They're about an hour and a half each. Um, they were done, um, uh, what is it called? There's a, a radio program, well, online uh, program that is done regularly. I'll think of it in a minute that he was on, but he talks about simplicity, which we will discuss tonight, Lord willing, and impassibility, which we will hit on uh, next week. So um, very good if you can find those. The other book I'll mention is called Does God Suffer? And that is by a man named Thomas Win Andy. It's not on Kindle, and it's a little expensive um, online, but it's uh, it's a great book. It's kind of the opus magnum, magnum opus uh, book of uh, this um, idea of divine impassibility, God without passions. And Thomas Winandy is a uh, he's actually a Roman Catholic friar, um, and he's he's kind of written the the best book there is on impassibility. So um, I would recommend that as well. So. Just some things, if you're interested in digging a little bit more on these specific topics, if you get into them and you just love studying this stuff, 
Uh, everyone kind of has areas of theology they really like to discover more in. Let me know, and I can recommend more. But those are kind of the, the best of the best uh, that are available right now. All right, so what I want to do uh, tonight is finish up where we left off last week on the incomprehensibility of God. And we'll just address um, three attributes of that very quickly. And then we will move on to the simplicity or the unity of God. And uh, hopefully we'll get uh, through that tonight so we can deal with impassibility next week. So we'll just see how far um, we get. So can someone who was here last week at least give us some sort of uh, summary statement of what we mean when we talk about the incomprehensibility of God? Good. So we, we had talked about the reality that... Um, uh, what we're not saying is that God cannot be known, right? We all agree that God has revealed himself to us. He has uh, shown us through general and specific revelation, through nature and his word, and through the word who is Christ, um, that he is God and he desires to be known. Um, so we can know God and we can know certain things about God. If not, then we would have nothing to study, right? Uh, we would just um, kind of make stuff up about what we think God is like. Well, God has revealed himself to us and therefore can be known. But what we did discuss is that um, God is God and therefore is incomprehensible, meaning um, there are things about God that we will never know. There are things about God that we will never know completely um, well. Really, we talked about the fact that there is not one thing about God in his nature, in his essence, in his character, that we will ever be able to know in, in toto, completely, um, because we will uh, be with God for eternity. He is an eternal God and therefore cannot ever be completely known by finite creatures such as ourselves, um, which in its essence makes up uh, God as God. If God was... Um, completely knowable by his uh, creatures, um, then he, uh, he would cease to be the God that we understand from the scriptures. Uh, to attribute um, to him um, titles or attributes or to speak of his glory and the sorts of uh, specifically the incommunicable attributes of God, such as his omniscience, his omnipresence, these sorts of things. If we were to understand those completely um, in how they work at any point in time uh, would mean that we, um, those attributes were no longer incommunicable. They would become certain things that we would understand and uh, perhaps um, uh, some hypothesize uh, be able to, uh, in essence, figure out how to implement ourselves. I probably wouldn't take it that far, but um, nevertheless... Um, to know how God is at all places, at all times, and yet intimately involved in every uh, micron of existence um, is probably enough for us to consider God's incomprehensibility. Um, but I do want to deal with um, this doctrine on three levels uh, very quickly tonight, and then we will move on to the next. Um, so let's, uh, let's jump in right there on, um, on your sheet, if you should have two sides to it. Um, flip to the one that's the incomprehensibility of God. And first we will deal with the being of God. And someone, uh, so I'm not talking all night, can someone read that for us? 
Okay, another, another thing to consider is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of every believer. Um, and we could go on and on and, and give uh, many examples of this, but um, God's very being, the fact that God exists as three, our confession says, three subsistences and yet one God, three persons and yet one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all making um, who is uh, God. How, how is that? Um, it's a mystery. We speak of it as mystery. Um, and we dare not seek to uh, resolve the mystery. God has presented it as mystery, and therefore it maintains its mysteriousness. The hypostatic union of Christ... Christ as 100% God and 100% man, and those two natures do not intermingle or cut one another off, but rather they are, um, they are uh, completely um, in Christ and yet uh, function uh, independently of one another. It's, a, it's, again, a very mysterious thing. And so these are things we would point to and say that um, they are incomprehensible. We have no... I was just listening um, today to a conversation... Uh, between two apologists, well, not to each other, but they're responding to one another. Um, one is trying to give all of these examples or illustrations to try and understand the Trinitarian nature of God, and the other is saying, I don't even know why you're attempting to do that. Let's just point to what the Scriptures say about the Trinity and let it rest, because it's mystery, um, because there's nothing in nature that we can even begin to uh, try to find some kind of um, true identifying mark uh, that we can say this is what the Trinity is like. I'm sure we've all heard illustrations. Um, all of them fail at every point. And so to even try to do that is to minimize what God has, um, who God is in the Trinity. And uh, therefore, is, is, um, is not the best way to approach dealing with it. Um, I think uh, I agree that we should simply turn to the Scriptures, um, see what the Scriptures have to say about the Trinitarian nature of God, and leave it at that, and not try and find examples in nature that would compare to it, because nothing does compare. So um, those, as we talk about the being of God and His incomprehensibility, it's these types of doctrines that we would, um, that we would um, refer to in terms of God's um, being. Any thoughts or questions on that? All right, the incomprehensibility of the works of God. If someone could please uh, read that for us. Thank you. So that first part there, um, Jonathan Edwards was uh, really instrumental in kind of developing this um, understanding of God's intimate involvement of every um, area of, um, of creation in that he sustains every micron of existence. And were he not intimately involved at all times, then, uh, then it would simply cease to exist. So I always use this poor chair as an example. Um, what he's saying is all of the individual microns, the little individual, I don't, am I using the right word, Felicia? Okay. Of, uh, that make up the substance of this wooden chair. Every bit of, um, of substance within this um, is held together by God and sustained by God um, to make this a chair. If God were at any moment to turn away from or to let go of or however you want to describe that, 
um, any of those microns in their um, form to make this chair, it would no longer cease to exist as it is. That's a bit of a mind-blowing thought, isn't it? That all of the cells and atoms and everything that make us up in our personhood um, are held together and sustained by God for eternity. Um, we, get a, uh, we get a taste of this in the scriptures when, um, when it talks about God knowing how many hairs are on our heads. Um, why? Well, because he holds them all in place as they are. Um, and as they fall from our head, it is, um, it is by God's uh, design. And so, um, again, this is something that we would look at and say, this is, this is just mind-blowing. It's incomprehensible. We think simply of ourselves or even just, just think of what it takes uh, in this room for all of this to exist within uh, the power of God. And then we think of this to the uttermost ends of all of the universe, which, um, which God says is the outskirts of his ways. Um, that is amazing. It's unfathomable. Um, and so uh, just in creation, but then we think of his work in redemption, reconciliation, glorification for Christians. Um, no doubt as to why uh, the heavenly anthem before Christ will always be, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation 5. It's really a remarkable work of God um, that will carry on throughout eternity. So uh, any, any questions on that in terms of the works of God? Or thoughts. All right, the incomprehensibility of the attributes of God. If someone will just read that uh, top paragraph there. Okay, thank you. So remember, we discussed um, God's name, His name for Himself, which was what? What was what the name He gave to Moses? I am. Right. So the very name I am itself makes known to us the incomprehensibility of God, of his attributes, specifically of his essence. Um, God is, um, and we're going to really deal with this in just a moment, but he's not made up of individual parts and individual attributes and these things, but he is um, he is the absolute essence of all of these things that we look at individually. Um, but he is these things um, in complete wholeness. So, um, as we just looked at, there are various attributes that are communicable. So, let me give you an example of this. Um, we are commanded to love, to love God, to love our neighbor. Um, but when we talk about God, we, um, we can't simply just talk about God loving, but uh, the Bible tells us in 1 John that God is love, that God is the full um, and complete and total and perfect attribute of love. Um, God can show love. God can communicate love. But first and foremost, God is love. And we can go down his attributes, and I will admit this is a... Uh, this is something that um, 
scholars disagree on, um, but um, I believe and I think our confession teaches that as you go down um, the attributes, we can say of each of them that these are God, that God is wrath, that God is just, that God is holy, and all of these, that these aren't simply descriptions of what God does or how God functions, but that this is God. As we And not individually, but all together. But we can only think of them individually in parts. And we're going to, I know that maybe you have some questions about that. We're going to deal, that's the whole doctrine we're about to dig into. So um, I'll let you chew on it for a little bit. Um, I love this quote um, by uh, Stephen um, Charnock. Uh, it's a... Uh, 17th century work, The Existence and Attributes of God. If you don't have it in your library, I really highly recommend that you get it. Um, you can get, um, it's two volumes. You can get both volumes in one, um, I think fairly cheap uh, on Amazon. If you want, I can order it for you. But um, this is one to have. Um, it's about this big, and it's, uh, it's yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's uh, it's still referenced um, regularly today on anything dealing with God's existence and attributes. So I'm not going to read that quote for time's sake, but I really encourage you to take some time and work through what he has um, written on what I printed on your sheets there. Um, so to kind of sum all of this up in terms of God's incomprehensibility, man's ability to comprehend God in this life is limited to a great, uh, to a great extent by our own sin. Now, we do realize that in the absence of sin, when we are in a glorified state, the things that we do and are able to understand will be, uh, will be known. The Bible tells us this. Uh, it's a question brought up last week, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, the things that God has revealed to us and that are able to be known by finite man will be known um, uh, clearly. We will see them and understand them clearly. The things that uh, we get wrong, uh, that we don't understand, or um, that we, um, we just never even thought about certain things. Uh, they will be known clearly in that God has revealed them to us. The full extent of those things, we will never know. We will always be learning. We will always be growing. Um, the vast array of knowledge that could be known, uh, we will always be learning and growing in. Um, but our knowledge that we will have will be uh, will be perfect. It will be. Um, uh, it will be without error. It will be only true because we will be in a state of glorification. So, that's a that's a very promising thing. So we don't have to have theological debate, uh, but only a theological truth as we uh, grow in our understanding and learning together. So, um, anyhow, any uh, any further questions? Um, about the incomprehensibility of God. Sure, some of some of the older uh, theologians always talk about the um, the eternal study of God. That we will forever be studying uh, the the great and vast riches of God's um, uh, nature and character and attributes and work and all of these things. And it's just a a marvelous thought to even consider that 
Um, we'll, we'll always be learning. And so if you think of maybe times we've all had when we learn something about God and we are just so engrossed in it and it's so exciting to us, and that's only a foretaste of, of what uh, will be our eternity um, in growing in our knowledge and understanding of the Lord. And that's, uh, that's a, beautiful, a beautiful reality. So we learn the greatness of God uh, and grow more in our understanding of its fullness. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on that? All right. Let's jump into the doctrine of divine simplicity. Uh, This is dealing with, in our confession, if you um, are looking at that, we're in chapter 2 in paragraph 1. This is dealing with the statement that God is a most pure spirit, invisible, without body. This doctrine of simplicity is really dealing with the issue of God without parts. But I do, do not want to skip over this statement that God is without body. So we'll talk about that. Um, but we're really going to deal with God without parts and what that means exactly. So the Children's Catechism asks the question, who is God? What is, anyone know the answer to that? Who is God? If Eva was here, she could tell us. Okay. God is a spirit and has not a body like man. God is a spirit and has not a body like man. So the absence of a body for God is a traditional Christian orthodox answer. It does not meet any real significant disagreement among those who affirm the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. In fact, God without body is one of the many defining differences between biblical Christianity and, for example, the cult of Mormonism. Mormonism teaches um, their book, The Doctrine and Covenants, uh, Doctrine and Covenants 130 and verse 22 says, The Father has a body of flesh and bones as tangible as man's. Um, This is... Um, this is something that the more uh, a heresy the Mormons have maintained since the beginning. Uh, this is written by Joseph Smith, and they will tell you that God is like us, and therefore we can become as God, um, and that God once existed as us. Um, so that runs into all sorts of theological problems that we're going to deal with. Um, but nevertheless, um, this is the only real place in um, heretical teaching where you... Uh, where you see anything denying uh, or, I guess, adding to God a actual physical body. Um, God as a spirit is seemingly undeniable from the scriptural witness. Um, there's not a lot of disagreement um, coming from the scriptures. It's always some external um, Voice. Uh, it's not coming from the Bible. So a few examples, John 4:24, uh, maybe the most clear. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 2 Corinthians 3:17. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And 1 Timothy 1:17 alludes to this. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And of course, uh, it's in the song we sing, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Uh, God's invisible because God is spirit. God is without body. 
So God as a spiritual being does not have a physical body like his creatures. When, when the Bible then, and this is the question that comes up, well, the Bible talks about the hand of God or the eye of God or whatever, the finger of God. We see these things. When the scriptures attribute body parts to God or physical being to God, we understand them figuratively as what we call anthropomorphic. What is anthropomorphism? Anyone tell us what that is? Okay, yeah, in this sense, it's taking uh, human features and trying to describe something uh, by using those. So the Psalms use them in speaking of nature from time to time. You see it in poetry all the time. Anthropomorphism is used in poetry. So to say... um, you know that the the trees are cla- or the waves of the sea are clapping or the the trees are um, singing or whatever else they're using word sort of poetic language to describe what's going on in a way that we can understand so um, the language does not in in us in relationship to God the language does not highlight correspondence between man and God so let me give you an example psalm 94 9 we see this he who planted the ear does he not hear he who formed the eye does he not see now the human ear and eye obviously we have them we can see them we um, we can have them damaged and everything else um, they're visible replicas of God's invisible faculties of perception. They're visible replicas of God's invisible faculties of perception. So God can see, God can hear, obviously. Our ability to do those things is finite, is limited, but it does exist as a replica of the bigger picture. It's sort of, um, maybe we've never even thought about this, that um, the very fact that we see in here is only a signpost pointing to the, the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-hearing God um, because we are created in His image, um, which is a, a beautiful um, thought in itself. So there is, in one sense, um, some unity in terms of our being created in God's image, but in another sense, there is great um, discorrespondence between divine and human faculties. Um, when the Bible ascribes to God human-like qualities, we should interpret that language um, comparatively or analogically. We're, we're dealing with an analogy, not reality. And if you study the, um, the context of those statements in the Bible, if you understand the genre in which they're written, as we talked about several weeks back in determining genre, um, then you see very clearly this is not a literal sense that's being applied. So God is what we would call non-corporal. He, uh, he is without body. Um, remember in Luke uh, 24, after um, the resurrection, um, in response to the disciples' assessment of Jesus that he was a spirit, he said, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So if we tie that to the statement that God is spirit and Jesus' affirmation that a spirit does not have flesh and bones as I have, we see a descriptor 
that if God is spirit, he does not have flesh and bones. I think that's a fair way to use the scriptures to explain, um, explain the scriptures. Um, so, what we mean by all of this then is that God does not have property of matter that can be ascribed to him. He has no extension of space, no weight, no mass, no bulk, no parts, no form, no taste, no smell. All of these things um, are applied to him um, in only in analogical terms, in analogy, but not in reality. He is invisible, he is spirit, and he is being in one existence without parts. In other words, he is simple. That's where we get the name of the doctrine of simplicity. He is simple. Um, I'll deal with Jesus later because that obviously is probably something everyone thinks of in this. Well, what about is Jesus God? Well, yes, of course. Um, but we're dealing we're dealing with God. Um, as a whole right now and not dealing with the individual persons of God. Um, so we'll deal with that later. Now, this issue of God without body um, is really present. If we, if we really want to think of where we see this in the scriptures, um, we really only need to look to the second commandment. The second commandment prohibits any attempt to fashion any image of God. Um, Moses reminds the Israelites in Deuteronomy 4, You saw no form of any kind the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the fire. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourself an idol, an image of any shape. So, He's telling the Israelites, you don't know what I look like. You've never seen me. I am spirit. And therefore, to make anything and ascribe to it any kind of description that would say this is God or this is what God looks like or this is a representation of God even is idolatry uh, because there is, um, there is no understanding of uh, what God looks like because God is spirit and invisible. Um, so, of course, what did they do? Um, they made all sorts of things to try and look like God, so they could worship them. Um, so God is spirit, and they who worship him must worship him, Jesus tells us, in spirit and in truth. So the Christian must take great care uh, to never think of God in his spiritual essence as having any material characteristics. So before we push on from there, are there any thoughts or questions or is any of that confusing to you? I'm trying to trying to move along, but at the same time I want to make sure everyone's tracking. We can camp out wherever we need to. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. With the long finger yeah, touching Adams. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, you know, when we see those things, this might get into a... <laughs> um, let me bring this up. When God is present in the garden with Adam and Eve, who is walking with Adam and Eve? Jesus. 
right? Jesus has form, right? Jesus as God has form. When um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in the fiery furnace and the angel appears, who is the angel? It's Jesus in, in bodily form. When Isaiah sees God high and lifted up on the throne in Isaiah 6, who is Isaiah seeing? Jesus. Um, and we can go on and on throughout the Bible, through the Old Testament specifically, and see um, that anytime there is physical presence that is visible, it's always in the form of Jesus. Why? Because when you deal with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Trinitarian nature of God, which of the persons has physical subsistence, existence, or essence? It's only Jesus. Um, and uh, all of this speaks to the eternality of Jesus as well. So now when we deal with other areas where God is speaking or God is present, but he is not in bodily form, um, you know, we wouldn't say that the fire itself was God, but that God was um, speaking out of the fire, that the fire itself was sort of a... Um, a way to show Moses that God is uh, present. Remember, God used that to kind of draw Moses to him, to come here and, and speak of, um, to speak to him. Or when he, he passes over Moses in the cleft of the rock, it says you know, he, he covered his face so he could not see him. So, um, but when we're, when we're dealing with that, we're, there is no physical presence of God in terms of actual visual, visible representation. So I don't know if that... Yeah, I would say it's certainly there to, it certainly was there to gain Moses' attention. Um, that's what he took note of immediately, right? He sees a burning bush in the middle of the desert and wonders why it's not burning up. And so he goes to check it out. It's kind of the story that we get there. Um, uh, be careful to say that it's something to focus on because... Um, we could use that to distort in all sorts of ways, that we use images and icons and all that sort of thing to focus. Sure, sure. Um, but, but certainly, at least in the very minimum, as a, a way to bring Moses to a place where he would be focused on communing with God at that point in time. Yeah. So, whatever, you know. Sure. Yeah, there's no, you know, obviously that's something, there's really no consensus in terms of people looking at the scriptures and saying what we understand no i mean i i would i i would certainly uh i i think that's a valid consideration there i i wouldn't deny it i wouldn't say it's not um um uh, yeah I, that's a hard one because we have to be careful even there in the language that we're using. To say um, Jesus in his pre-human state in terms of... This is something we'll deal with in paragraph 3 of our chapter, but when did Jesus become human? At the incarnation. Jesus was not a human being until he was born. And so the physical, and yet he still had visible physical attributes that were displayed pre-incarnate. Um, 
that could be seen in these ways. So I certainly wouldn't deny and, um, and probably lean more toward the fact that that may very well have been um, pre-incarnate Christ in that. Right. Sure. That's one of those things that is currently incomprehensible that we will know. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I, I, I would, you know, if you think of, if you think of in terms of what we see in the revelation of John, um, there is no, there is no sun. Why is there no sun in heaven? Because the glory of God is the light that shines um, the brightest. And there is no need for any other light other than God's glory. So I think there's probably a bit of that involved in the the circumstance there. um, That the glory of God shines brightly and is is, uh, visible beyond any other light. Um, It's, uh, again, an incomprehensible light. Um, So... Uh, yeah, I mean, we have many examples in the scriptures that we can look at that have these sorts of incidents um, where we see a revealing of God's glory, but we have to understand it in terms of God's um, essence of being. That God is spirit, and God was without a body. Um, and when we say that, we're again we're dealing with um, God as God, not dealing with the person of Christ. That is a another um, that's another discussion for another time. But <laughs> uh, you know that's when we're getting into the hypostatic union, this idea of Jesus as God and man, and what that looks like. But again, that's uh, as Sam said, that is God. Um, inserting himself into the story, inserting himself into time and space, inserting himself into intimate involvement with his creation and his creatures outside of the eternal, um, not even outside, but in some sense outside of the eternal realm um, that he has always existed in. Um, So, oh my goodness. All right. Um, Well... (laughs) We didn't even really start on simplicity, so uh, we will do that next week, <laughs> which is fine. I'm glad. I, I'm very thankful that we're having. I I was slightly worried when we started uh, last week. You know, there's going to be parts of the confession that we will all be tracking on and be able to move through fairly quickly, and we understand. There's others like this that deal with certain elements and attributes of God that are... Um, kind of way up here for all of us and things that we uh, don't consider that often, but they're so rich and so helpful and I think grow us in our, not only understanding, but our love and our admiration and awe of God. So I hope that, if nothing else, that that's going on. So we will deal with the simplicity of God. Um, Next week we'll jump right into that and maybe we'll get through it as we deal with God without parts. Any uh, concluding thoughts on anything we discussed this evening? All right, well, let's uh, pray and we'll be done. Lord, thanks again uh, for our uh, opportunity tonight to 
gather to study, to discuss, to be challenged, to be helped, and um, to be amazed. And Lord, I truly do pray that all of us leave here tonight absolutely amazed, stunned by your glory, by your greatness, by your incomprehensibility, by your simplicity, and by your great works of your own being, your, your works of creation and uh, redemption and reconciliation, by your nature and your attributes. And all of these wonderful things that we speak of, Lord, help, help us to never speak of these things only in philosophical terms and ideas, uh, but make them very real to us. Because you are a real relational God who has revealed himself to us and that we can know you. And please, Lord, help us to know more and more of you and to understand that um, we will never reach the heights or the depths of all that you are and uh, give us a great desire to do so um, nevertheless. Lord, thank you. Uh, Thank you for revealing yourself to us and calling us to be your people that we might delight in these things all the more and that you'd be glorified in our knowing more of you. Lord, bless our evening. Help us to uh, continue to think on these things through the week and uh, to have a greater desire um, to grow in our knowledge and understanding of you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.